Without honesty and humility, we have nothing with God. Let's turn to Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Without honesty and humility, we have nothing with God. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Now, it's just been maybe two days since Jesus was proclaimed the Messiah, and it's just three days until he will be executed as the king of the Jews on a Roman cross. And so here in the book of Mark, we find ourselves, as we get into the new year of 2019, we actually find ourselves in the middle of what we know as Holy Week. Mark has, has actually covered 33 years of Jesus' life in just 11 chapters, and he will spend the remaining five chapters covering three days of Jesus' life. Now, throughout the book of Mark, Jesus has been repeatedly facing off against the religious leadership out in the countryside, out in the boonies, and almost all of the fights of the altercations have been about authority, as in the religious leaders feel that Jesus is undermining their authority and the power that they've enjoyed over the people. Now, we know this because Jesus drew crowds, and the reason that Jesus drew crowds was because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And as you can imagine, that did not go down well with the religious leaders. And then Jesus went ahead and claimed authority for himself. He said this, but I want you to know in Mark chapter 2 verse 10 that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And then Jesus goes and transfers this authority that he has and he hands it on to others. He handed it on to his followers to preach and to cast out evil spirits. But now this fight about authority has moved out from the boonies, out in the countryside. Now it's moved into the temple courts. And it's suddenly a lot more serious because Jesus is on the turf of the religious leaders. Now, I don't know about you, but my experience is that most fights are actually about authority. Spousal fights, parent-children fights, in-law fights co-worker fights. It's usually because someone feels that someone else is stepping over a line, infringing on their freedom, that there's some kind of a, an abuse of authority. And so it's kind of sad to think that this group, um, that, that, that this group known as the Sanhedrin are fighting about authority. And yes, they're fighting about authority now, but in three days' time, they are they will shift from fighting about authority to actually, to actually wangling the crucifixion and the execution of Christ himself. And so there's a link here between fighting about authority and Christ on the cross. And in fact, if you remember, Jesus prophesied this three times that he would have to die. And on the third time, he said this, that the, that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, which is what the Sanhedrin is, which is like the ruling council. It's the court. It's the religious temple court. And so he will be handed over to the Sanhedrin, 
They will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and they will kill him. So it's no surprise for us that here at this moment that he's confronted in the temple by the Sanhedrin because this was not like a casual fancy seeing you here kind of a thing. It was planned, it was meant, and it was rather maybe inevitable. And in fact, we could also say that this was unrolling just as God the Father and Jesus planned it. So here they are in the temple courts, and they're facing off. Now, there weren't any tumbleweeds, and no one said that this, that, that this, um, that this town or this temple isn't big enough for both of us. But if someone had said that, it would have been absolutely perfect because only one person has authority to choose and to say what's going on in the temple. And so the question is, who has that authority? Is it the Sanhedrin or is it Christ? And so instead of guns at dawn, these religious leaders shoot a loaded question at Jesus. Now, I imagine that they would have had to have had a secret meeting, uh, you know, as the Sanhedrin, to try to come up with the best question that they think would stump Christ. And then they lay in wait in the temple courts until Jesus shows up. And then they pose him with this rather deceitful question. One that is supposed to expose him as the fake that they think he is. And so they ask him this, by what authority are you doing this? This is in uh, Mark 11 verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things, they ask, and who gave you authority to do this? And in other words, what they're saying is, Jesus, who do you think you are? We were on an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and I was serving as the leader and the director of the MV Logos Hope. Our managing director of this ship was away, and so he'd asked me to step into this role for a few days. Now, I'd never done this before, and I was quite nervous. I was responsible for 400 people from 60 different countries, and... Um, and one of the reasons why I was feeling nervous is that we had a bit of a complicated relationship with the port authorities, which resulted in the ship being moved from birth to birth, which was A, expensive, and B, a lot of work, and C, it was really hard to say to the public, we will be open at this particular place when actually we're over there on the other side of the port. And so the captain of the ship and I would sit down and we would talk about how are we going to handle this rather delicate situation? But while I found it a huge honor to be serving, you know, as the acting director, I couldn't completely enjoy it. And the reason why I couldn't completely enjoy it was because I felt that eventually someone would come up to me and say, hold on, who do you think you are? What authority do you think that you have to sit down and meet with the captain of the ship and maybe give him some advice, words of wisdom on how to deal with the port authorities? But then uh, a few days later, it was less than a week, Seelan, our director, he's the guy on the right there, he came back and I gratefully handed back the reins of leadership, glad that the ship was still afloat and that he now had to handle all of the stuff that he usually did and I could go back to being blissfully clueless about what went on at that level. And so here we have a bunch of people in the temple saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? 
Now, last week, we, we talked about how our hearts is, are like the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what happens is that Jesus comes into our lives. He comes into our hearts. He messes things up. We, we realize that life with him isn't all that we thought it would be. It's hard. It's not a bed of roses. There are thorns um, that it's actually required change on our part, that we now have a conscience that affects us when we're doing things wrong, whereas we didn't have to worry about that in the past. We now have a moral standard that keeps us up at night when we know that we aren't true to it. We now care about things that we didn't even know existed before meeting Christ, things like holiness and righteousness and choosing God's glory over our own wishes. And so we come back to Jesus sometimes in the temple of our own hearts and we say, hey, who do you think you are? Just like these men in the temple. And when we ask this, what we're hoping is that Jesus comes back to us and says, okay, you're right. I have no right to make any claims over your life whatsoever. You are the boss of you. I'm going to back off now. That's what we hope, but we know that it will never happen because this is his space. It's his holy temple, not ours. And so inside of us, every single one of us who loves Christ and who is who's following Christ, if you don't know Christ, then this is not happening in you. But if you do know Christ, then there's this war going on inside you um, of two competing worldviews. On the one side, we have our new lives in Christ. And on the other side, we have our old life and the old principles at work. And these old principles hate the fact that our lives are under new management, which is why we often feel that life is like a battle between the new you and the old you. And so the good news is, is that if you feel that, it's a sign that you're alive in Christ. So if you feel that war going on, you should be encouraged because it's a sign of life. If you don't have that, then that's when you should be worried because perhaps you're not alive in Christ. And, uh, and so these men are there in the temple trying to get out of a way or... They're trying to find a way out of, out of the claim that Christ has over their lives. They want to rob him of his authority, which, which is why they asked him the question that they did. You see, if he answered the question by, um, by saying that he was doing this with God's authority, which he in fact was because he is God, then they could accuse him of actual blasphemy. On the other hand, if he said that he was doing it from human authority, then it would really discredit him because he would be just another guy who has an axe to grind. And so they stood there smug thinking that they finally got him and maybe he'll leave them alone in the temple, but they were so wrong. Now what happened at this moment kind of makes me think of Wile E. Coyote who thinks that he finally has Roadrunner and there's no way that Roadrunner can possibly get out of the predicament that he finds himself in. But then the scene always ends, as it always does, with Wile E. Coyote running off the edge of a cliff and with Roadrunner running into the distance shouting, Meep, Meep. So this is Roadrunner. This is Christ. And he says, Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by which authority I am doing these things. And then he says, verse 30, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it of human origin? Would you tell me? Now, he doesn't answer their rather deceitful question um, because he wants to 
expose them. And so he gives a rather discerning response so that, like I said, he can expose them. He, he poses a question of his own. It's like they try to land this really clumsy punch and he avoids it and he knocks it off and he comes around with a roundhouse kick and hits him in the head, says, and, and the question that he asks them is, based on the evidence, who do you think I am? Because Jesus is willing to answer their question as long as they're honest enough to answer his. You see, Jesus knows what's hidden behind their question. He knows that they're trying to rub his name in mud. And so with this crowd surrounding them, super excited to see this face-off between Rabbi Messiah and the religious mafia, Jesus tries to uncover these leaders' hard hearts by asking them this loaded question, was God or man behind John's ministry? Now, it's hard for us to really understand why the baptism of John was such a big deal. Well, Mark chapter 1 verse 4 explains why. It says this, um, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, which means he was leading people to change. And the folks loved John the Baptist. After 400 years of silence from God, there was finally this guy who was speaking God's words, proving that God still loved them and that God still cared. And so there were many people who responded and who were baptized by him, but that, that group did not include this group, the Sanhedrin. They did not respond. They were never baptized because they didn't think they had to change. They thought they were okay. So that's why this baptism was so important. But And it was also, John's baptism was God's way to prepare the way for Jesus. As Mark chapter 2 verse 1 tells us, I will send my, mas my messenger away I will send my messenger ahead of you, which is John, who will, who, who will prepare your way, Jesus' way, through the baptism of repentance. And so here's the thing is that if these people can say that this baptism was not from God, then they get to say that the one who it was heralding was not from God either. If you get to reject John, then you get to re reject Jesus. And then there's this moment where where Jesus is, is baptized by John and the whole of the Trinity show up in a visible way, in an audible way to, to say to Jesus, you're doing the right thing. Here's the power. Have at it. And so what Jesus is saying when he talks about John's baptism is he's saying to them, who do you think I am based on the evidence John, he baptized me. God showed up. John thought I was the Messiah. What about you? And in the temple of our own hearts, we can drift into sin. We can long for the freedom of the other gods. We can long to make idols of stuff, and we want to really justify it any way we can. Last week, I talked about how worship is regularly inviting Jesus into our hearts so that he can clean house. But when Jesus comes in and points out uh, what needs changing, most of the time, we don't like it. And so just like the Sanhedrin, we challenge Jesus' authority. We say to him, who do you think you are? And Jesus comes back to us, just like he did to this group in the temple, and he says, Okay, based on the evidence, who do you think I am? Because if I am who I say I am, then I have the authority to clean house. 
But if I'm not, then you're free, you know, to kick me out. And so Jesus wants us, he wants us to be real. He wants us to be honest. Paul in Romans 7 talks about, you know, the battle, this war which is, ra- which is waging between the flesh and the spirit. And he says this, so I find this law at work, although I, I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And I know what that's like, and I'm sure you do as well. And so what that means is that right in the temple of our hearts, there's a war waging. On, waging. So at the same time, we are the people inviting Jesus to come in and clean our hearts. And at the same time, we are the people saying to Jesus, who do you think you are coming in here like that? You see, we want to squeeze out of accountability. We want to wriggle out of it so that we're free to do our own thing. And the best way for us to do that is to convince ourselves that Jesus isn't actually Lord and he doesn't have any claim on our life. And every time that I sin, that's what I am in effect doing. But in, but in his grace and mercy, Jesus invites us to be honest with him by saying, who do you think I am? You see, he, he, he wants us all to live our lives on the rock-solid principle of his lordship. He wants to be everything to us, and so he exposes the fakery and the loopholes that we try to exploit and that we do very well. We're experts at this. And he says to us, would you just put aside all pretense and fakeness? Just be honest with me now. Am I the Lord of the temple? Am I the Lord of your life? Because if I am, then I have the right to come in and make this life of yours a holy place for holy living, a place where God can dwell. And so Jesus responds to the leader's rather deceptive question with a, with, with a discerning response. And their answer is this. They say, well, if we say that John's ministry, John's baptism was from heaven, then he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, and then dot, 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 that, that thought is never finished because they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. In other words, they intentionally sat on the fence They responded to Jesus' grace-filled, really discerning question with a disingenuous answer. They fobbed him off by saying, well, we don't know. Jesus invited them to examine the facts, the evidence for themselves, and they refused. And we do that, right? Rather than basing our lives on honest investigation and truth and principles, how often do we choose what makes our life easy? This Sanhedrin had zero spiritual honesty. Zero spiritual honesty. They would not stand up for what they actually believed in. And neither would they consider that maybe Jesus was who he said he, he, he was. And so they sit on the fence and they say, well, we don't know, which isn't true. And there's nothing that will shut down our conversation with God, our communication with God, like us not being honest with him. If we aren't honest with him, then the conversation's over. And so because they were not honest with Jesus, he shut them out. He said in verse 33, 
neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Because without honesty and humility, they had nothing with God. Mark's gospel was written to Roman Christians who were suffering under Emperor Nero. And he blamed them for a fire that wiped out a huge section of the city. And because of this, they were being used as, you know, human torches to light up, you know, you know the roads and the gardens. Like, they, you know, they were actually strung up there and lit on fire. They were being literally fed to, yeah, to animals for, for, you know, the pleasure of other people. Why? Because they had looked at the evidence that Jesus was Lord and they stood up for what they believed. And so as we read this account in Mark, the meaning and the poignancy of this situation would not have been lost on them. Here was a group of people who refused to examine the evidence and who refused to stand up for what they believed. Instead, they sat on the fence. And so here in North Gore in 2019, I wonder which are you? Are you like the Sanhedrin or are you like, like the Roman Christians? Have you examined yeah, the claims of Christ? If so, then you know that he has all the right in the world for him to do whatever it takes to free up this temple of our hearts to love him with everything. He has the right to cast out any lesser loves that enslave us. He has this right. But there are many of us who are playing religion, who are sitting on the fence, who when faced with the claims of Christ, we respond, well, I don't know. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. I don't know. We're, we're afraid of people's opinions, and so we keep our true thoughts to ourselves. But I don't know is not an opt-out. Because when we say, I don't know, if we're not being honest, because there's an honest, I don't know, and then there's a dishonest, I don't know. But So if we're not being honest with our, I don't know, if we're using it as an opt-out, then we're closing the door on communication with Christ. We're closing the door on a relationship with him. At least if you reject Christ's claims, you're being real. And when we're real, Christ is able to work with that. He can deal with our doubts. He can deal with our questions. He can deal with our honest rejection of him. At least there's something there for him to work with. But when we come to Jesus with our deceptive questions, hoping to wiggle out of a life of obedience, when we hear this this still small voice of the Holy Spirit asking us these probing questions that will expose the real us. And when we choose to respond with these fake non-answers, with these really disingenuous non-answers that allow us to be spiritual and religious without being truly committed to Christ, then that's when we run the risk of Jesus Christ himself closing down the conversation with us neither will I tell you. Without honesty and humility, we have nothing with the Lord. But when we're honest with Jesus, when we, when, when we keep inviting him to come and clean house, when we acknowledge that he has authority over us and our lives, when we look at the evidence of his claims and when we give him access to our lives, when we refuse to sit on the fence, no matter how hard it is, then that is the moment that we experience unhindered, free-flowing, intellectually stimulating 
mind-renewing, sin-exposing, hope-bringing, priority-changing, soul-sanctifying conversation with God himself.